Well, good morning. Welcome, welcome here this morning. Glad to see you could make it out. We are continuing our series in the book of Acts this morning. We are in Acts chapter 1 currently. And to uh, recap the story just quickly for you, um, there are these dudes, dudes, there's about 12 of them, and they grew up in Jerusalem area hearing about the Messiah who would come to save them. Then they meet this guy who says, hey, come follow me. And he does amazing things. He says amazing things. He says some hard things. He says confusing things. He heals people. He gives them power to heal people and cast out demons. So they devote their lives to him. Because there's only one answer. He is the Messiah. He has so much authority and power that they can't even comprehend it. In fact, actually, it scared them how much power and authority that he had. And they come into Jerusalem singing and praising and shouting all the wonderful things that he's done. And then he's arrested and crucified and killed on a cross. All their hopes and dreams and everything just crushed. But then... He did not stay dead. No, the grave could not hold him. He rose to life. And he came back and he showed himself to them. And they were like, whoa, this guy has all the power and authority. Like, can you imagine? Like, all right, let's go take over the world, Jesus. And then Jesus is like, all right, peace out. See you later. What? Like, you just got back. Like, let's do stuff. In fact, Jesus actually tells him, it's better if, if I go. They're like, Jesus, you're awesome. What could be better than you being here with us? You're like the definition of awesome, literally. And then he's gone. And they're left standing there looking up into the sky. So much so that actually two angels had to come to them and be like, what are you doing? This group of people just, well, where'd he go? It's like, he will return, but you have one command still from him. Jesus said, one more thing, one more order for them to do. Go and wait. Go in Jerusalem and wait. So that's where we pick up the story this morning. They are going to wait. Reading from Acts chapter 1, starting in verse 12. Uh, you can just listen. I'll tell, tell the story for you, or you can open your Bible and follow along if you want. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives, a Sabbath day walk from the city. When they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying. Those present were Peter, John, James, Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, Simon the zealot, and Judas son of James, not Judas Iscariot. They all joined together constantly in prayer along with the woman and Mary, the mother of Jesus and with his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the believers, a group numbering about 120, and said, brothers and sisters, or brothers and sisters, yeah, they're all there, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke long ago through the mouth of David concerning Judas, who served as a guide for those who rested Jesus. He was one of our number and shared in this ministry. 
With the reward he got for his wickedness, Judas bought a field. There he fell headlong, his body burst open, and all his intestines spilled out. Everyone in Jerusalem heard about this. So they called that field in their language, Acheldama, that is, field of blood. For, Peter said, it is written in the book of Psalms, may his place be deserted, let there be no one to dwell in it, and may another take his place of leadership. Therefore, it is necessary to choose one of the men who have been with us this whole time the Lord went in and out among us, beginning from John's baptism to the time when Jesus was taken up from us, for one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection." So they proposed two men, Joseph, called Barsabbas, also known as Justice, and Matthias. Then they prayed, Lord, you know everyone's heart. Show us which of these two you have chosen to take over this apostolic ministry, which Judas left to go where he belongs. Then they cast lots, and the lot fell to Matthias. So he was added to the eleven apostles. So they went back to Jerusalem. They went back and they were waiting and they were praying. Waiting and praying. For 10 days, waiting and praying. Now you know, well we know because it tells us, that during this time, this 10 days of waiting and praying, that the conversation about Judas had to, had to come up. Like why did he do that? Like, you know... How did Jesus know he was going to do that? What, what do we do now? And so they were hurt and confused by what Judas did, but they didn't know what to do. Because, I mean, Jesus, who had been leading them for three years and they'd followed his commands, now Jesus wasn't there. But Jesus told them that the scriptures prophesied what was going to happen. So that's where they turn. They look to scriptures to see. So Peter looks through Scripture. First, he looks to Psalm 69 and then Psalm 109. I kind of get the idea that during this 10 days of praying and waiting, like Peter just read through the Psalms, like started at 1, went all the way to 150, and he got to 69. It's like, oh, this is going to end to 109. Um, it's interesting, though, uh, Psalm 69 and Psalm 109, um, King David, who wrote them, is crying out to God about those who attacked him and sought to destroy him. Sound familiar? Happened to Jesus. There are lots and lots of psalms that when we view them and read them in the context of Christ, they add so much depth. Jesus, when he was on the cross, he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Psalm 22. You can look at Psalm 16, Psalm 31, Psalm 41, Psalm 110, which, by the way, Psalm 110 is the most quoted psalm in the New Testament. Um, I encourage you, look through the Psalms, read them with the view of Christ in mind. It is, it's incredible. But he gets to Psalm 69 and he reads this. May his place be deserted. May his camp, may his dwelling, um, may his home be deserted. Let there be no one to dwell in it. Peter said that this prophecy is fulfilled in Judas' death. Judas' life came to nothing. There was no home for him to dwell in. I mean, not that we know that he had a home or a house, but we know that he had a field. He, I mean, he didn't personally buy the field. The story we have of this is 
the 30 pieces of silver that he betrayed Jesus for, he threw back at the priests, and the priests are like, well, we can't take this money back because it's blood money now, and we can't get our hands dirty, even though they already had. Um, but so they used it, and they bought a field in Judas's name for, for him, um, probably most likely the field that he um, hung himself in. Now, um, it is turned into a graveyard after Judas's death. So this prophecy of fulfilling, may his place be deserted and let no one dwell in it. No one dwelled in it. Peter says it is this prophecy that explains to them why Judas is no longer here. It had to come to pass. Um, now, as to the manner of Judas's death, um, in, in Matthew we read that Judas hung himself, and in Acts here we see that he fell and his body broke open and his insides became his outsides. Um, so, this is kind of, are they conflicting stories? No, they're actually complementary. And the field that Judas most likely bought, you can look it up and whatnot, it's kind of on a hillside. And there's all these little cliffs kind of going along it. And so they think that Judas probably hung himself over a cliff um, rather than a tree. Trees were fairly scarce, scarce there. But even if it was a tree or a cliff, what happened was he hung himself and then the rope broke or the branch broke and he fell. And he'd probably been hanging there for a little while. And that's what happens when a body is decomposing and decaying and kind of gross. Anyways, that answered the question to them as, okay, why did Judas have to die and, and be gone? You know, he's no longer one of our number. But they're like, now what? Um, Jesus had made promises to them. He, he told them there was going to be 12 thrones in heaven that each of you are going to sit on and judge the nations. In the book of Revelation, it says um, the foundations, there's 12 foundations in the wall that surrounds the big city. Um, 12 foundations, that's crazy. I don't know architecture, but that seems intense. And on the 12 different foundations are the names of the 12 different um, disciples. And it's like, well, now what? There's only 11 of us. How's that going to happen? So what does Peter do? He keeps searching. He keeps reading, and he gets to Psalm 109. And he reads in Psalm 109, may another take his place of leadership or take his office. Um, when David wrote this Psalm, Psalm 109, he was referring to the person who attacked him, who was the innocent party in his mind, in his writing this. And Jesus was the ultimate innocent one who was attacked. And it says, now let another take his place of leadership. So they got direction. Got to find a replacement. I'm like... How do you replace one of the 12 disciples? That seems like a pretty big task. But Peter set out some requirements. They needed to be a witness to the ministry, to the death and resurrection of Jesus, starting at his baptism and then ending at his ascension into heaven. Peter says, what makes us a disciple? Well, we follow them around from his baptism till his ascension. So he's like, if we've got to get another person to fill that position, they should have to have gone through everything that we went through. Makes sense? Right. So there's about 120 of them in this room, and I just kind of get this picture. I don't know if this is how it happened or not, but I'm like, I get this idea that they're just kind of like asking people like, okay, who's here for the feeding of the 5,000? Yeah, okay, yeah, yeah, hands up. Okay, who's here for the 12, you know, lepers and whatnot, you know? And they just kind of go around, and after they go through the whole thing, it comes down to two guys. Two guys that have been with them the whole time, that have seen and experienced and witnessed um, Jesus' life and miracles. Two guys, one named Joseph or Barsabbas or Justice, he's got three names, 
Um, I'm like, I would be confused as to which to call him. Uh, but then, and this other guy, Matthias. We don't really know much about these two dudes at all, other than they were with Jesus the whole time, and they fit the requirements. Um, and so they didn't know which one to choose. There were two. Like, they were both there. I don't know. So they prayed and said, okay, God, you need to show us. And then they cast lots to see who would fill that role. Now, um, I did a lot of research on casting lots to try and figure out what exactly what it was, because I'm like, how did this even happen? Like, if it was a coin, I could understand that. It's pretty close to a coin toss, same idea, random chance. But what most likely was is they had a cup, and they had two stones, and on one stone they'd put an M for Matthias, and on the other stone they'd put a JBJ for Joseph Barsabbath's justice, and they put them into the cup, then mix it all up, shake it around, and then dump it out, and the first one to fall out was the one that they would choose. They cast a lot, and the lot fell to Matthias. Um, so they take him and add him, and he becomes one of their number, one of the 12. Now, I want to make a small point here. This is the last time that we see the use of casting of lots in Scripture, um, when the Holy Spirit comes and lives inside of us, we no longer need to flip a coin to make decisions. We have him living inside of us, guiding us, directing us. So if you have a big decision to make, casting lots probably is not the best way for you to do that or flipping a coin. Um, we seek um, direction from the Lord through the Holy Spirit. So small thing. Um, there's one thing that came up quite a bit, actually, while I was doing research into this. And I was actually a little bit surprised um, and there's a lot of people, or I don't know, <laughs> there's a lot of people who think that Peter was wrong in replacing Matthias. Because, like, if he would have just waited for a few more days, the Holy Spirit would have come, and then the Holy Spirit would have directed them to choose Paul. Because he wrote, you know, most of the New Testament. So he clearly was the super apostle, and that was what they were supposed to choose, and they didn't choose him, and they made a mistake, and, you know, yada, yada, yada. I would tend to disagree. I think Peter made the right choice and did the right thing for a number of reasons, which I will try to concisely give to you here. Um, Luke, who is writing this book, went around and interviewed and researched people. And how he writes this is not of something that they made a mistake in doing. He writes it as in, this is what they did, this is how he was counted, he was part of the 12, move on, done deal, not a big issue. The other thing that I find interesting is, there was 120 people who followed Jesus around for three years, who saw his miracle, who heard his teaching. They have spent days committing themselves to prayer and study of the scripture. And they all agree this is a good idea. I have a hard time believing that they were wrong. That 120 people who followed Jesus around could all get together in one room praying for days studying the scripture and then being like, oh no, they made a big mistake. I think that's very unlikely. I think that they were directed by God to do this. The other thing is, Paul doesn't fit the requirements that Peter lays out. Peter says that this person has to have been with them starting from the baptism to his ascension. Paul wasn't there for that. Paul wasn't there at his baptism. Paul wasn't there for all these miracles. And that's very important because the reason they needed someone who'd been there is so that they could have someone who would be a witness to testify to the truth of what Jesus did and also be able to defend it. I was there. I saw it happen. Yes, this is true. That's very important that the people who started out, the 12 original, are the ones that saw it and were there and experienced it with Jesus. 
Um, the last note about this, well, actually, I had two more. Um, Paul, actually, wrote so much of the New Testament. That's part of the reason why people think he was supposed to actually be the, the 12th disciple. But only three of the actual 12 disciples wrote books in the New Testament. Um, so seven out of the 27 books we have in the New Testament were written by um, disciples. The others were written by, like, Jesus' brothers and Paul and some people we guess about. We're not sure exactly who wrote some of them. But Also, in chapter 2, when the Holy Spirit comes, I think this is really important as well, when the Holy Spirit comes upon them and they all speak in tongues in the next chapter, we're going to look at that next week, Matthias speaks in tongues. It says they all spoke in tongues and prophesied of Jesus. The Holy Spirit confirmed their selection and said, yes, pouring out my spirit on him and him and him and him, all 12 of them. Um, so, I think they did the right thing. Because, I mean, what do we direct you to do or us to do, me to do, when, when we have a decision to make? It's like, oh man, I don't know what to do. Well, pray and study the scripture. That's exactly what they did. That's exactly what we recommend. Um, so, a couple things I want to point out from this passage. They took the words of Scripture as authoritative when Peter read the Psalms. He took it as direction, as direct commands from the Lord. Why did he do that? He explains it in verse 16. He says, Brothers, the Scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke long ago, through the mouth of David concerning Judas. The scripture had to be fulfilled because the Holy Spirit spoke it through the mouth of David. The Holy Spirit spoke through the mouth of David, giving him the words that he was to write down. This is probably one of the clearest verses we have of the origin of God's word. It was God that caused David to write what he did. I mean, David even says it of himself. In 2 Samuel 23, verse 2, he says, The Spirit of the Lord speaks by me. His words are on my tongue. His words. You see, the Holy Spirit had an active part in the world and in people's lives before he comes here permanently. Um... He had an active part in creation. It says he was there in the beginning. He gave life, the breath, into animals and humans. He gave power to leaders in the Bible, judges and kings. It says he even gave skill to craftsmen and tradesmen and musicians. The Spirit guided and spoke through the prophets and King David, like we see here. He came upon many people. He rested on them. And that's important. In the Old Testament, God's Holy Spirit rested on people. The coming that they are waiting for is when he lives within. God's power came on people in the Old Testament. In the New Testament now, his power lives within us. It's a permanent residency. It is not a coming and going. It is a, that's my home. Permanent. So that's why we take the Bible so seriously. Every word had its origin in the mouth of God. 2 Timothy 3.16 For all scripture 
is God-breathed. Coming out of his mouth, the breath of God. You know, it says all scripture, all of it. We can't just pick and choose the parts we like and the parts we don't like. It's all God's word. Because, I mean, we kind of like to do that. I mean, we do that in life. I like to do that with God's word. Oh, this part is really nice. I really like this part. But this other part is hard, and I don't understand it, and it's confusing, and ugh. So we'll just kind of skip over that. No, we can't. God has revealed who he is and how he operates through his word. Now, if there's things in here that we don't understand because they don't fit with the picture of God that we have, then our picture of God is wrong. And we need to adjust to conform to the truth. But there's things in here that are hard, yes. There's things in here that do this in my head, and I cannot figure them out. But if my puny mind could understand God, he would be a puny God to fit inside my mind. There are things that we are not going to understand that we take on faith and trust. But God's word is true. That's what Peter's trying to say here. He's saying it had to be fulfilled. There wasn't a choice. This had to happen because it was foretold. He says we must do this. We must replace him because it was foretold. God's word will come to pass. You can take that as a promise. It's powerful. It's enduring. It's incredible. It will not fail. Not one word from here will fail. But I guess... My question is, why do we have to use this story to illustrate this? This isn't a happy, fun story. This is a guy that they spent three years of their life with almost every day who betrays them. And because of it, their Lord is killed. And then he commits suicide. You can imagine how they were feeling. Why is it this story is in here? It kind of seems a little out of place. Jesus goes to heaven. He's like, wait for my spirit. Oh, by the way, Judas, death, guts. I think one reason that it's here, because it's here for a purpose, is that not everything in our lives are happy and clean. Not everything is positive. There are hard things we go through. I know there's some hard things that we've all had to go through that we don't understand. Deep betrayal of a close friend. This is hard stuff, but this passage is showing us, is teaching us God is still in control. Even when we don't understand. God is in control in the hard times. His word is true. It 
has to come true. And so think about this. Think about all the promises that you know from God. That he is a good father. That he only gives good gifts to his children. That he will be with you always. That he will never leave you. If you believe in him, you will be saved. Those are promises. But promise almost seems weak when it's something that is so unbreakable. Those have to happen because that is who God is. His word is unbreakable. When he says he will never leave you, he will never leave you. When he says if you believe in him, you'll be saved, you believe in him, you will be saved. It's truth. Don't we all want truth? Oh man, we need truth, especially in this world full of lies and fake news. Like, we need the truth, which is what God has given us. Which is that God does what he says he will do. We can take him at his word. If he says something's going to happen, it's going to happen. It must happen. It can't not happen. You see, our hope in Jesus, our hope in Jesus isn't just like a wish or a, you know, 50-50 chance. It's a guarantee. You can bank on it. You can build your life on it. And when the whole world tells you you're wrong and that you're a fool for believing, you can confidently stand your ground in the strength of the Spirit and weather any storm this world has to offer and brings your way because his promises are true and he has proved them over and over and over again. There's one other thing that I want to point out from this passage, and I really do think that this passage is for me and you and for our church here right now, today. The disciples, they were waiting for something. I believe that God is preparing our church for something. God is preparing us here and now for something. There's an anticipation growing, a longing, a desire to see God's power shown in transforming lives, bringing people from darkness into light, setting them free from the chains of sin. God is preparing us for something. I had a vision um, a month or so ago about our church, and it was our church as a light that was growing, getting bigger and brighter and brighter and brighter. I believe that's what God wants to do here. His kingdom to come and grow and expand. But I feel like we're, we're kind of like the disciples. We're almost in that in-between time. We're waiting for it. But it's like, what do we do in the meantime? We devote ourselves to prayer and to studying his word. Praying for the kingdom to come here on earth, in our city, in our church. So, I would ask you to join me in rededicating ourselves to prayer. 
to praying that God's kingdom would come here and that we would be ready for what he has. We need to prepare our hearts. And, oh, I pray that that we are ready when he comes to make his power known. Let's pray. Father God, your word is true. Your word is true. God, there is nothing that can stand against you. And what you said is going to happen will happen, God. We take that as a promise and we hold tight to it. Father, we thank you so much for your son and what that means for us. We thank you for the coming of your spirit to live inside of us, to lead and guide and counsel. Lord, I prepare that we would, I pray that we would prepare ourselves for you, for what you want to do here, God. All for the glory and praise of your name, Jesus Christ. Amen.